0: Hello, we're going to get started in a second, uh, and uh, as people filter in. So just give us a minute. We're about to get started with this very, very interesting program. Welcome and for most of you, good afternoon. uh, Wanna invite you to join us this afternoon for a program and a conversation that's been convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. This is the School of Public Affairs for the University of Minnesota based in Minneapolis. I'm Larry Jacobs, I'm a faculty at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School And I'm also um, director of the center uh, in which the um, Certificate in Election Administration is based. I just want to say a quick word about the Certificate in Election Administration in case you don't know about it. It's a pioneering online program that shares best practices with current election officials. It's also preparing students who are interested in a career in election administration. Um, The certificate's 12 credits. It's taught by prominent leaders in election administration, both in Washington and in states around the country. It's accessible uh, online 24 hours a day. So it's quite convenient. Uh, It also has a very strong placement record. Our graduates are getting jobs uh, around the country. And if you're interested in looking into registration, uh, here's the email. Uh, to do it Um, and if it moves too fast just you could just search for the certificate in election administration and get that information. I want to just quickly mention some of the upcoming classes we have this fall. Um, Amy Wilson who's uh, a really talented uh, instructor and official in the Colorado Secretary of State's office will be teaching a survey in election administration. Tammy Patrick who I think many of you will know um, and is highly regarded uh, will be teaching her course in data analysis for election administration. Very uh, helpful course uh, for officials and for those coming into the field at first. We also have a course in introduction to election security. It's part of a concentration that we've built on cyber security and election uh, security. Doug Chapin uh, will be teaching that course. Uh, if you're interested, can gather the information. I wanna also just very quickly mention that we have a program coming up in a few weeks on September 1st. It'll be moderated by Matt Veal at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And it's looking at the challenges of voting in person. It's a lot of conversations of voting by mail. This is a program on the challenges of voting in person and a lot of the progress that's being made around the country. Uh, as we move to today's program, I just want to let you know that we value your participation. It's a big part of today's program and all of our programs. And you'll see at the bottom of the page, there's a Q&A button. Click on that. Give us your question. We're going to get to as many as possible. Um, I want to now uh, welcome and introduce today's moderator, Wendy Underhill. She is Director for Elections Redistricting at the National Confer- Conference of state legislatures. Thank you very much, Wendy.
1: Well, and I wanna uh, say thank you to you. I really appreciate having the opportunity to be here with you today. As I was listening to what you said, I was thinking about your role as an educator, and obviously you're educating the students at the University of Minnesota, but you have a much broader view of what education means to include educating the public, and that is wonderful. And I think that education piece might um, follow us through as we go. So uh, I want to introduce our panelists, but before I do that, I just want to say that uh, the topic that's been chosen is such an important one for us. Uh, I'm thinking back at what kinds of questions we were getting in January at the National Conference of State Legislatures. And these would be questions from legislators, legislative staff, and reporters as well. And at that point, it was all about cybersecurity, and I think some people in the election world were getting even a little tired of it, although they would put in four years of really hard work to try to make sure that local election officials, state-level election officials, and the federal government were all working well together. So that was in the B.C. times, the before coronavirus. And now we're in the the P.C. times, uh, in this case, meaning uh, post-coronavirus. And the conversation is just entirely different than it was before. And it's all about uh, our um, absentee slash mail ballot secure How do we know that they're secure? Uh, What are the concerns with this? And that's all really good information. And I think we'll touch on some of that. But that's one subset of the whole picture of uh, security for elections. So I'm looking forward to what we will learn from our panelists. Now I'm going to just give you a brief update on who's with us today. We're going to hear from Matt Masterson first. He's a senior cybersecurity expert at the Department of Homeland Security. But what he really brings to the table is experience as an election official in the state of Ohio, uh, formerly serving as a commissioner for the US Election Assistance Commission, and just a absolute passion for running good elections and being able to express to the world how you know you're running good elections. Then we're going to hear from Jennifer Morrell, and she is the uh, director of the Election Verification Project at the Democracy Fund, and I'm fairly sure she wears some other hats, too, which she might share with us when when we get to her. Um, Again, from my perspective, what's great about Jennifer is that she is a former local election official and brings that to the table, as well as her ability to break down really tough things like risk-limiting audits in a way that makes sense to um, the average reader, such as myself. And then we're going to turn to Maurice Turner, and he is a senior advisor at the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. Um, And I would say that the EAC was very lucky indeed when they when they grabbed him. He's been there maybe, I don't know, eight months, something like that. He'll tell us Um, he has a deep background on elections, on security and on the Internet and how to put those together. And again, what's maybe more important from my perspective and yours as learners today is that he knows how to um, take that forward to an audience at whatever level they might get at. So we have three great educators. Let's uh, just go ahead and go with it. Uh, Matt, take it away.
2: Yeah, Wendy, thank you. And uh, what a pleasure it is to be here with uh, three of my favorite people uh, in elections. Uh, Usually we'd be together at conferences, kind of sad not to, but uh, really appreciate Minnesota, Larry, uh, you all allowing me to do this. Uh, I taught a class Uh, for the program uh, last, uh, what was it, last spring, and really, really enjoyed it. Wonderful, wonderful program. Uh, So from uh, my perspective, uh, I lead the election work at the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Uh, It's part of DHS, uh, but we're uh, independent, and our job is to support state and local election officials to manage risk to their systems, Uh, to support with information sharing uh, and services. And and I'll talk a little bit about how we're doing that. I I think Wendy hit the nail on the head. There was uh, pre-COVID and post, uh, I hesitate to say post-COVID, during COVID, DC maybe. Uh, uh, And uh, cybersecurity uh, was at top of mind. uh, Election officials over the last three years, there's been recent uh, studies released by the uh, Center for Election Innovation and Research that shows uh, real progress being made Uh, around securing systems. We're seeing two-factor authentication used more widely. We're seeing network uh, segmentation used more uh, and better information and training happening for state and local election officials. So that's wonderful progress. Uh, I've seen the work put in. We at CIS as we're out doing support and services have really seen the improvements made. Doesn't mean we don't have more work to do, and I'll touch a little bit on that, Uh, but election officials really deserve credit. Uh, for what they've done. And then COVID rolls around and, uh, you know, presidential elections weren't exciting enough. We might as well throw in a pandemic, uh, in the midst of this. Uh, and like, uh, the election community always does, uh, they put their heads down. They work to understand, uh, exactly what needed to be done. Uh, some of the early states shared information about what worked and didn't work, uh, which is just so typical of the election community. Uh, and, and really states have uh, worked with their locals to understand what needs to happen, whether that's expanded absentee voting, uh, whether that's uh, more in-person opportunities, use of arenas or, or fields, uh, drive up or, uh, or curbside voting, uh, innovation abounds as, as election officials work to respond. But those cybersecurity challenges still remain. And in fact, uh, the risk changes as systems change, as processes change. Uh, and so for us at CISA, we've worked really hard to understand How has the risk changed? What what changes are election officials uh, necessarily needing to make? How can we best support them uh, and and manage that risk? And then how do we talk about this with the public? How do we engage the American public? Uh, We know that voters uh, often take three or four election cycles to become comfortable with changes, even small changes in the process. Uh, And so election officials have been put in this position one, to change quickly, which is, is not a typical thing for an election official to have to do. And then two, to, to engage their voters about what those changes are and how to engage the process. Uh, so for us at CISA, uh, first is the, the focus on providing resources and information about managing risk. We recently, last week, issued two risk assessments uh, from working with the election community, with the private sector uh, in elections. One is on election infrastructure risk generally, uh, the takeaway from that, not surprisingly, uh, is that networked or outward-facing systems, things like election night reporting, voter registration lookup, voter registration data, uh, polling place locators, and general business systems, so just your, your computers that you work at, uh, are the, uh, the most at risk, in part because of attack tax surface, uh, in part because of the type of data that's available and the interest there, certainly websites. Uh, remain in play. Uh, And then voting systems, which which get talked about a lot, are high impact uh, assets. Uh, But what we've seen is a move towards more auditability across the states. Uh, 92 plus percent of votes cast in this upcoming election will have an auditable record. So how do we focus on doing good efficient audits? And and that's something Jennifer uh, will touch on and has really led the way on. Uh, Second is we released a risk assessment specifically around absentee by mail voting. Uh, really focused on what changes are happening in the community, these changes are happening quickly, uh, and and where is risk being introduced. Uh, And what we found is, first of all, uh, absentee-by-mail voting doesn't increase the risk in our assessment, Uh, it just shifts the risk to different areas. Uh, And and those areas are, first and foremost, uh, management of third-party providers. As election officials are quickly responding uh, to covid uh, they're bringing in uh, mailhouse vendors and processing and central count scanners and all of those things uh, that they wouldn't have necessarily had if they weren't a high mail-in state. So Colorado, Oregon, Washington already had all of this. Uh, but for states that are really ramping up, uh, you may have more third parties involved. How are you managing those vendors? What are their accesses? What data do they get? How are you controlling that? How are you understanding the integrity of that data? The second is uh, voter registration data, which was already primary importance, uh, really takes on enhanced importance. Uh, in an absentee or vote-by-mail environment. That's what we use both to send ballots and to validate ballots when they come back. So really that ability to monitor your voter registration system, that ability to track and understand if there are anomalies and then to recover if something happens, right? Having backups, exercising those backups and responding really becomes critical. And then third is really around messaging to the public, helping them understand what are their options, how does the process work uh, and really uh, engaging them publicly uh, so that they know uh, both how they can be involved in the process, but also uh, what steps election officials take to ensure uh, that the process is secure. So, uh, in the end, I think all of our goal, and, and the other panels to talk about it, all of our goal is really uh, to to have a process that that supports a voter uh, that is first prepared, that has the information they need. Am I registered? What's on my ballot? Uh, how do I interact with the process? Second, a patient voter, a voter that understands that things are changing, that it may take time to get your ballot, may take time to return the ballot, election night results may not be as complete as, as, uh, as is typical, uh, but remain patient, the process uh, remains secure and, and interact. And then participating voter. We know we need poll workers. Uh, we know uh, that COVID has uh, really challenged us to, to do that outreach. Uh, and so taking advantage of the, your opportunity because we run elections at the state and local level to engage as a poll worker, an election worker, to watch pre-election testing, to participate, because it's the way you can really best understand the process, have confidence, and serve your community. So I'll wrap up on that uh, and just appreciate this panel so much.
1: Well, Matt, one thing that comes to my mind is that this is a new definition of participatory democracy. It's not just voting. It's um, paying attention in advance, watching the um, pre-election activities, and serving. And uh, if we could just everybody say, please encourage everyone to serve as a poll worker, that would be great. Uh, we do have one question that's specific for you, so I think I'll go ahead and ask it while I've got you here. And that is that the um, Ohio Secretary of State uh, has indicated that uh, drop boxes will be available in one location in each county. And do you have any comments, any thoughts? This comes from Tom.
2: Yeah, obviously aware of that. Uh, we at CISA, working with Jennifer and others, have, have worked on guidance about securing and implementing drop boxes. Certainly encourage election officials that are that are looking at uh, the possibility of using drop boxes to check out the resources. It's CISA, CISA.gov, Protect2020. Uh, the resources are right there. Uh, but uh, each state's making decisions about what they need to do, uh, what their laws allow, and and uh, we just want to be able to support and meet them where they are.
1: Got it. Thank you. Um, with that, uh, let's uh, shift from Matt to Jennifer. Are you ready to go?
3: I am Wendy. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be here. Uh, And thanks for mentioning my uh, focus and my commitment to uh, post election audits, especially risk limiting audits. Uh, That hasn't changed, but it has shifted a little bit. So uh, I've actually taken a step back and have spent time over the last few months, uh, as you mentioned, wearing some other hats. Supporting state and local officials who are experiencing really dynamic change, as we've seen, uh, both both around the way they administer in-person voting, as well as this expanded growth in vote by mail, and really thinking about uh, what's critical Uh, to building trust and assurance that an election was conducted correctly and what really is the foundation of good audits and what it's led me to are three sort of specific things that I hope we'll have an opportunity maybe to talk more about uh, today. First of all, I love the teaser for this panel. Uh, Good elections are secure elections. So uh, I would say good elections and secure elections start with well-documented procedures. And I think that those are especially critical uh, if you're experiencing that significant change or a significant shift in the way that you conduct your election. Uh, Vote by mail is a great example. And just having something in your head really isn't good enough. Uh, I know for a lot of folks that have done this uh, many, many times, uh, those routines are there and you know them in and out. But now is really an opportunity to have clearly written, documented procedures and checklists. And so what do I mean by that? Thinking again, like about the vote by mail process. I'm talking about checklists for your retrieval teams when they're out collecting ballots from drop boxes that include chain of custody forms. And thinking about when those ballots are brought back to your election facility and how do they get checked in? How are they accounted for? What happens in the signature verification process? What does that look like? How do you account for ballots when they're rejected for a signature discrepancy or a missing signature, and those that are moved forward to be opened? uh, How will ballots be transported, and how are you going to document when they're transferred from one working area to another, from one set of hands to another? what is the physical process for verifying uh, the number of ballot cards once they've been opened and extracted before they're sent to be scanned? And is there a way to reconcile all of that against what the scanner or the voting system indicate, indicates has been scanned? Uh, so it's, it's procedures and logs and, and things for your ballot duplication teams and, and, and forms, uh, chain of custody forms all the way through the storage of those ballots. Um, I know that sounds like a lot, but in reality, those written procedures really become the foundation uh, and the way that you do go about uh, validating or verifying your election. Um, And we could go through a similar list for for ballots cast in person. Uh, So going back to this idea, good elections and secure elections are built on a foundation of solid accounting. Uh, And I've, I've mentioned those terms already, reconciliation, ballot control, chain of custody, auditing, those sorts of things. I think this is uh, particularly uh, important for this election cycle. We do not need headlines to say, uh, you know, 2000 ballots missing, uh, recovered during the canvas process or, or something like that are found uh, in a ballot drop box that were are unaccounted for. So really thinking about uh, creating these routine protocols by creating checklists, as I've mentioned already, and and coupling those with chain of custody forms and these ballot tracking or batch control sheets is really important. But I I think the thing that I would just caution people about is we're going to be faced with this urgency, this sense of needing to get results out quickly, how do we move ballots through a little bit faster, And I want to make sure that we don't sacrifice the time it takes to complete those forms and to complete that that reconciliation or balancing uh, just to gain a little bit of extra time. And I think that that's happening. uh, As I talk to many of you, as as I talk to many local election officials, uh, they're doing this and they have been doing this for a very long time. But I also know from talking to many of you that it's challenging uh, because you're working with this diverse group of poll workers and temporary workers. And so now is really the time to test your system. Uh, CISIS talks a lot about testing your network, testing your cybersecurity. I would say test your internal uh, protocols and and standard operating procedures. Uh, Run them through a, a dry run or dress rehearsal and make sure that those forms are intuitive and easy for people to complete. And then all of those things, uh, the standard operating procedures, the ballot accounting forms, Uh, that really then becomes the foundation for your audit. And I won't dive into uh, what's needed for that, but if you're contemplating doing, uh, if you're required by law to do a post-election audit or you're contemplating a a risk limiting audit pilot or something like that, focusing on standard operating procedures, focusing on ballot accounting, really makes the rest of the the moving, transitioning into an, an audit sort of framework much easier. Final thing. Good elections, secure elections are administered, I, I think on this belief in transparency and that democracy belongs to all of us. Uh, and we, we, we do that. We, we, we encourage, uh, as you've mentioned, voters to participate, uh, but we also have a responsibility as election administrators, as folks that are supporting the election community to help communicate what those processes are both to voters and stakeholders, so that we help them, as Matt said, set realistic expectations, um, so that we can help them form a plan and know how they're gonna vote and when they're gonna vote and what the requirements are. And so some of the work that I've been doing is to really help uh, election officials think about how they can educate uh, voters and others on all of these processes that I mentioned um, and inform them uh, not just about what to expect, but the the added benefit of that is when the public understands what what actually takes place. They're actually probably one of the first uh, to pick up the phone and call you when something isn't quite right or something um, uh, looks amiss. So I think I'll end there.
1: Uh, That was wonderful, Jennifer. Thank you very much. When I think about local election officials, I have two thoughts that come to mind. One is that they know how to squeeze a nickel harder than anybody, because generally speaking, money has not been flowing towards election departments. And the other is that they're a little bit like Santa Claus, because they've got their lists and they're checking them twice. And you talk checklist a number of times it doesn't sound very sexy but it is that kind of attention to detail is what makes the difference between being on the front page for oopses and uh, um, or staying on page three for a nice job you did um you also kind of picked up on the communication slash education uh theme it seems like transparency is a great thing on its own but if you're transparent but nobody knows it that's not uh, the same you've got to uh, let people know that your systems are transparent so the education thing goes on here. Uh, here's a little bit of a wild card. What can you tell us about contingency planning for election officials.
3: Yeah, there's been a lot done okay. around that. And I think uh, thanks to good work from CISA and, and the EAC for for putting together um, templates and uh, running folks through uh, tabletop training exercises, that sort of thing. But, uh, it, you know, it is a little bit complicated now because you used to focus your contingency plans on things like natural disasters or, uh, you know, folks just not showing up, and now this idea, this very uh, real situation where you may have to close down a polling location, or uh, deal with, um, you know, voters that come in that let you know that they have COVID, and you've got to figure out how to handle that and how to still allow them the opportunity to vote. So I think um, it's been a pretty big focus. Matt, I know, um, can talk more about that. And that's another area where uh, one thing that I've seen really elevated that um, has been critical to the success of those contingency plans is communication, is thinking about like, who are all of the people both within my local jurisdiction, at the state level, federal partners, need to be communicated to and in what order and what information needs to be shared with them. I think, Wendy, one of the remarkable things that's happening is that we're realizing that successful elections don't happen in a bubble, and it takes a lot of collaboration and a lot of work among a lot of different entities and expertise uh, to make all of this work really well.
1: That's for sure, Um, and I know that at the end of this, we're going to be sending out some information to folks, and if we could put on that list um, any samples of chain of control forms, uh, that would be great. Uh, There's a question in there. And speaking of questions, if any of you have questions for any of our panelists, please do put them in the Q&A. Maurice, are you teed up, ready to go? I am. Go for it.
4: So my name is Maurice Turner. I am Senior Advisor to the Executive Director at the Election Assistance Commission. Our goal is really to act as a clearinghouse to make sure that state and local officials have all of the information and resources that they need to conduct their elections, to make sure that they're accessible, secure, and also usable and accountable. Uh, So with that being said, it sounds like we do a lot, which is true. Uh, We're a relatively small agency, uh, but we think that we have a big impact in that we try to bring together as many partners as possible. You've heard Jennifer and Matt talk about the importance of collaboration, and that's really at the heart of our mission. Uh, Most recently, uh, in talking about COVID-19 response, uh, states were provided with grant funding, about $400 million in March. And so one of our main goals over the past few months has been to help get that money to states to make sure that they can respond uh, to the pandemic. And when I talk about respond, I really do mean the nuts and bolts of administration uh, to make sure that they have enough hand sanitizer or uh, shields or even um, remote access for their election workers to make sure that the elections can run on time. So part of that includes uh, bringing that information back to the EAC so that we can help distribute those best practices to the other election officials, help share that learning. And that's why I talk about the importance of collaboration Uh, Elections are run different ways all across the country, and that's uh, part of the benefit, but also part of the challenge. Uh, Jurisdictions vary in size from a couple of hundred voters to millions of voters. And so it's hard to say that one particular solution is going to work the same way for everyone. Uh, There are obviously laws that are in place, different resources uh, that are available that would change how a local election official might be able to take a best practice and bring it down uh, to their day-to-day operations. So uh, we've talked about sort of what we've done in COVID response, uh, but taking a step back, uh, the AC's role is also to make sure that we're collecting data from a more of a historical point of view. Uh, We have our Eves study, that's the uh, Election Administration uh, and Voting Survey, to take county-level data and surface that and really get to the root of how are elections being run across the country. And that's the data that you often hear reference in news stories or other research projects. So we take that role very seriously uh, to make sure that on a regular basis, we're conducting this study, uh, as it's stated in HAVA, Health America Vote Act, so that we can notice the trends that are going along in election administration. Uh, I always think it's funny when people talk about uh, their election traditions and trying to keep things the same. Uh, But if we look back, election administration has been uh, vibrant and innovative uh, for decades now. Uh, Elections are are almost nothing like they were even just a few years ago. If We're talking about the arc of going uh, from primarily paper-based ballots to then shifting over to uh, DREs and BMDs uh, and and then back to having the the paper audit trail. So there's been constant change. Uh, Voters can now register online uh, through a, a number of different portals. Uh, and now we're starting to see ballot tracking. Uh, so if someone actually mails in their ballot, um, in some jurisdictions are being able to track the progress to make sure that it's received um, and that it's being counted or adjudicated. So I think that uh, with all these new technologies that are coming into play, it's important that election officials have some place where they can go, some place where they can uh, trust the people and the information they're getting so that they can learn these best practices and put them into use. one thing I've heard consistently is that we're never taking anything off of the plates of election officials. It seems to be getting more work uh, all the time, uh, but nothing is really coming off of their plate. Uh, So whether it's COVID or or cybersecurity um, or power outages or poll workers, uh, they need to be as flexible uh, as possible and as prepared as possible to make sure that voters can access the ballot and trust in the results.
1: Well, Maurice, that was great. Um, uh, I want to say that the data that's kept at the um, uh, Election Assistance Commission is really quite remarkable. It was a heavy lift when it got designed, and every two years it just gets better and better. Uh, And I love the fact that our data that we do and your data often are in great alignment, not always. Um, Could you talk to us just a little bit about... um, the misinformation, disinformation side of things. That's a little different than the cybersecurity. It's a little different than the vote counting. Um, and it's a little outside the envelope, but but share with us what you can on that, please.
4: Certainly, misinformation has been a threat to elections uh, for quite a while, uh, but it's now just coming to the surface. It's definitely been accelerated in terms of its reach and efficacy um, with the popularity of social media platforms, especially. So the concern is that, Uh, especially in 2020, uh, where we're having so many legitimate changes to the way that our elections are being run, whether it's a temporary response to COVID, or it's a permanent change. uh, And speaking about those uh, more innovative ways of reaching voters, uh, whether that be uh, through uh, voter registration online, um, or tracing those ballots. So it's incumbent on election officials to make sure that their voters know that the local election officials are a source of trusted information, but more importantly, uh, to help educate those voters, as Matt said, you know, being prepared and, and patient uh, is something that all voters can do. So, taking a, a moment to think about that post that you're you're sharing or that tweet that you're you're retweeting, uh, you know, really can mean the difference between those uh, misinformation messages uh, going viral and impacting more people or stopping with you. That's why the social media platforms are working uh, at multiple levels of government uh, to engage with state, local, and federal partners to help identify uh, those kinds of messages, and more importantly, stop the spread of those messages. Uh, We have seen uh, in recent months, even recent weeks, how uh, the social media platforms are stopping the spread very quickly um, and very aggressively um, when they are being notified that there is misinformation going out, whether it be about COVID or about elections. And so we definitely appreciate uh, that level of collaboration and helping to make sure that Not only the voters uh, don't see those misinformation messages, but they also get uh, accurate information uh, up front. I believe it was uh, Facebook just uh, yesterday or today uh, announced their new voter information portal to help surface information about where people can go for election information and even how they can vote and register to become poll workers.
1: Well, excellent. Thank you. Um, uh, So we keep coming back to this question about messaging and and you just shared with us. uh, Jennifer and Matt, would you also uh, just give us a hint on what you think good messaging would be for uh, local election officials to be getting out to the public? And Matt, I know you touched on it, but let's just have a couple of concrete things. Is this about Facebook? Is this about um, posters? Is this about uh, getting in touch with your local reporters at your local newspaper? What's the way that local election officials can get their message
2: out. Oh, I'll go to Matt first. Jen? Oh, yep, I'll go. I just didn't want to say I wanted to give Jen a chance. Uh, Yeah, really excellent question. Uh, And and the first uh, part of this is is to be transparent with your voters about the changes in the process. When you know uh, there are changes, when decisions are are made around uh, how folks can vote, what options are, uh, polling places, things like that, uh, making sure that it's sung, uh, pushed out loud and clear. Uh, I think the biggest challenge here, frankly, election officials do a very good job of doing this, in my experience, uh, it's, is their microphone loud enough? How do, how do we amplify their voice as a trusted uh, voice of this type of information, uh, whether it's through local, local news, national news, uh, again, uh, Maurice touched on Facebook's announcement, uh, making sure Facebook, when they're sharing information, is getting it directly from state and local officials. Uh, so it's up to date and accurate, I think is, is really, really critical, uh, so that voters can engage with that information. And again, uh, in, a, in an environment where we know adversaries are trying to undermine confidence in the process, right? Uh, where we know that's, that's part of the goals here. Uh, the ability to, to, uh, pre-bunk, uh, messaging to reassure voters about how the process works, the amount of, time and energy that goes into uh, things like the certification process, uh, uh, maintaining lists, uh, voter registration lists, things like that is really, really important. uh, Because the more voters hear it, the more sources they get it from, whether, you know, they see it on TV, and then again, reflected in their social media feeds, uh, the more likely it is to resonate to allow them at the very least to pause and say, wait a minute, I know I saw something about this. I think my state or local election official has some information about that, right? Uh, and so at CISA, we've been very focused. Uh, we have, uh, a, an entire initiative around countering foreign influence on this. Uh, and so we have products, uh, everything from, uh, a, a product around how does disinformation take hold and spread? Uh, it's called our, our, war on pineapple product. So it takes the divisive issue of pineapple on pizza, uh, and, and uses that to show how a divisive issue is targeted at the American public and and can be spread. Uh, The answer is pineapple does not belong on pizza. Uh, Anyone that answers otherwise is supporting the adversaries uh, in that mission. But uh, we also have uh, really simple flyers and even toolkits, state local uh, toolkits that say, here's how to talk to groups about uh, disinformation uh, to encourage them to read beyond the headline to encourage them to think before they link to something on their own social media accounts, to check sources of information. Um, and the purpose of this toolkit is because we recognize we're not uh, the, the best voice in many instances. It is that state or local official talking to your local Rotary Club or, or your local Urban League or, or uh, you know, Nileo and folks like that. And so uh, if you go to uh under countering inf- foreign influence, Uh, You'll see these toolkits and these flyers available. Uh, We have seen state and local officials take and use them in so many creative ways already, including just sharing them with the library and having information up at local libraries, uh, which before COVID uh, would have been uh, an effective uh, uh, approach. So uh, anything we could do to help support that, we're going to roll out Uh, information. And and the key here is anticipating where the election cycle is headed. So we know uh, the key dates, we know registration deadlines leading to absentee ballot deadlines leading to uh, election day and certification, getting out in front of those uh, and messaging it to the people. And we also know from research from Dana Chisnell and others that voters most want to know what's on my ballot, how do I vote, uh, and and then how do I know my vote will be counted as cast, right? So, So messaging that's so critical.
3: Well, yes. Well, go, ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead Jennifer. Your turn. I was gonna say I Matt really covered it, and I agree with just about everything he said, except that pineapple should be on pizza. <laughs> um, <they're laughs>
2: that's how they. Yeah, that's think, how they win, Jennifer. That's how they win.
3: So. I think when we think about voter communication and outreach, we need to think both uh, the pre-election period, which Matt went into a lot of detail about. Uh, We also have a resource uh, on the website for uh, my group, the Elections Group. It's called Managing Expectations in 2020. It lists a number of strategies uh, that can help you focus on all of those things that Matt mentioned. And I think that that website's going out with information. So you don't worry about writing it down. Um, But I also think like starting. Now is a good time to start thinking about how you're going to handle your results reporting. And I think it needs to be more than just putting up results, but really giving people a sense of what you're reporting, being specific about how many votes were cast and what proportion of those are mail ballots, in-person ballots, provisional ballots, what's been reported, what is still to be reported, And then maybe even thinking about putting it in context with what you saw in 2016. So I think as we start to think about slower results reporting, helping voters see, uh, you know, for this election, we've, we've, um, this number of ballots has been cast by mail as compared to 2016, when maybe it was 2%. This year it's, we're looking at 80%, just so that you start to set some, some expectations. Um, I think is going to be really, really critical just, just to helping uh, them, your stakeholders, your media, everybody sort of understand what is the picture of what we're looking at um, as we roll through these next few weeks towards uh, Canvas and certification.
1: Great. Um, we have lots and lots of really good questions in the uh, Q&A, so you can keep them rolling. I'm just going to um, uh, proceed with them. Um, uh, Carol asked, um, because we're on the topic of messaging, uh, what can we do to provide consistent messaging to the public about the security of voting by mail? So now it's a specific message, whereas before it was a more general message. Um, And uh, Maurice, I'm going to go to you first just because you've been silent for a moment. And then if the other two of you want to pop in, raise your hand or something and I'll have you pop in too.
4: Well, I think that's an excellent question because I have an excellent answer for it. Uh, we can just look at the data. Uh, we can take a look at the, at the data that's collected about um, the number of ballots that go out, the number of ballots that come back, um, and even the adjudication process. So I think uh, drilling down into the local level data is a great way to show uh, the risks associated um, with voting by mail or by absentee. Um, or mail-in voting. Um, and then you know, what's the actual harm that occurs if we're talking about a handful of ballots um, you know, out of thousands or tens of thousands that are cast, I'd say that's a fairly low risk way uh, to vote. And I think you know, you also look to the other side of the coin, which is, you know, what are the risks that are associated with in-person voting? And so I think having that data available is a great way to get down to the level of detail you need to in order to, uh, as an election official, um, make an assessment of what works best. Um, But then also, as Jennifer said, um, be able to communicate that message out and tell that story at the local level. So not just using national numbers or even state level numbers, but uh, use the local numbers to tell that
0: story.
1: Got it. Um, Matt and Jennifer want to add anything on messaging on voting by mail?
3: The only thing I would add is that I think each specific threat deserves its own uh, specific response in terms of the security measures that are in place, the testing that happens, the verification that happens, what those guardrails are. And I don't know, I don't think we really have time to go into that in this conversation, but I think you need to think about if if, if the allegation is Flooding the jurisdiction with counterfeit ballots, there's a definite list of things and protocols that are in place that would prevent that from happening. If it's people fraudulently casting multiple ballots, there are definitely some security measures and protocols that are in place to to help prevent that and mitigate that. So I think you need to be uh, specific, not just about the threat, but about what what the layers of security and that's the key thing it's not just a single thing right there are multiple layers of security uh to to secure each one of those elements
1: and matt before you jump in let me add two more questions from other people that were about um voting by mail bill asked with the increase in absentee mail ballots do you feel that states and municipalities have the tools to handle it and then um, patty asked another question she lives in a in Washington where they uh, send a ballot to everyone she says is all-male voting being considered for other states either just in the, the moment of the pandemic and beyond that and, and so if you can address either or both of those that'd be great.
2: Yeah I'll do my best I appreciate it. Uh, first on the, the question of how uh, all-male voting or the, or the response what we've seen is uh, there were already uh, five states uh, that do this uh, Washington, Oregon, uh, Utah, uh, Colorado and Hawaii Uh, We have seen California, Vermont, and Montana uh, also head that direction. At this point, uh, we're in August. I I think most states are are finalizing uh, their approach. And what we're seeing, just generally speaking as a trend, is is that uh, in states where Uh, No excuse is required. They're finding ways to either engage the public to talk to them about how to request an absentee ballot or mailing absentee ballot applications. We've seen a couple of states do that Uh, in states where vote by mail, uh, you require an excuse. We've seen several states say COVID counts as that excuse. Here's how to interact with the process. Uh, And so what you see is states responding uh, by using the tools available to them already, either through the law. Uh, or their processes in order to uh, engage voters to say, you know, this is an option for you and here's how that option can be used in our state. Right. Uh, and so uh, our goal uh, at CISA has been to understand how states are doing that uh, and then engage uh, in conversations with them about how we could best support them. So uh, uh, on our website, uh, we have uh, having worked with the EAC Uh, And state and local election officials in the private sector information on uh, ways to manage the outgoing mail process, ways to manage the incoming mail process, ways to secure your staff uh, in these environments, right? You're going to need people uh, to do this. And and to the question about tools, do they have the tools? Uh, In some cases, yes. In some cases, no, and and they've responded uh with creativity and and frankly a little bit of brute force what we've seen is uh they may not have uh the mail sorters and and things like that that you typically see in a in a high volume uh, uh mail election office so what you see is a lot of people uh physically distanced uh working together in bipartisan teams to process uh the, the uh ballots so uh i i think uh, the creativity and response from election officials uh, has been very real. I, I would say I know the focus is on uh, absentee or vote by mail, which I totally understand, uh, but we're seeing that same innovation in response in, in in person voting options and in ways to serve the public uh, in, in a variety of ways. And, and as Jennifer said, I think very eloquently, each method of voting, each uh, interaction carries with it risks and mitigations and controls. Uh, and so understanding what you're implementing and how to implement those controls to ensure security and then being transparent about it, right? Then talking about it and sharing with the public uh, what you've implemented and how you've done it uh, is really, really important uh, as changes are made because very naturally people are going to have questions uh, and, and that ability to engage and be open about uh, the changes you're making and how you're securing it is really, really critical. The, the other thing I'll note, and election officials have done this very well is is Vote by mail uh, or absentee voting, uh, many people think ballot goes out, ballot's mailed back. What we know from many states is uh, ballots are dropped back off at the local election office, ballots are dropped off in other places. And so understanding those options helps to mitigate some of that anxiety around the process. Okay, if I can't get it in the mail, what are my other choices? How do I respond? What's available to me under state law? So having that uh, available on your website and engaging people is critical.
1: Uh, Great. I want to move on to the U.S. Postal Service because we've got several questions and I'd like to share them all and then ask each of you to respond. Um, Everett asks, what impact will USPS changes have on the election and what are the mitigation options? That's a pretty good broad question. Linda asks sort of similarly, will USPS be able to handle the mail? And Donald asks, how can we respond to uh, President Trump's comments that the mail voting could be leading to fraud. Uh, maybe that belonged with the earlier piece. I, I saw USPS and put it together with this. So mitigation: uh, How do? What will the impact be? What are mitigation options, and can the Postal Service handle what's uh, in front of them? Jennifer, I'm going to put you up first on that, and then
3: Maurice. Yeah, you bet. So. Uh... It's all about communication and I think having ran elections in Colorado, which is an all-male ballot state, we found this to be true time and time and time again and I'm seeing election officials across the country embrace this idea of messaging to voters "Here, here are the legal deadlines but Ideally, you need to be submitting early. You need to be returning three to five days before the deadline, uh, those sorts of things. So understanding, here's the legal deadlines, and here's the probable time that it's going to take uh, for that piece of mail to move through the postal system, whether that's getting a ballot to you or, or coming back. I think uh, the use of drop boxes, well, I know it's uh, controversial um, in some locations in some states is a really great option. Um, It gets those ballots uh, to the local election official much sooner. Um, It allows them to start processing them sooner. Again, there are certainly ways to secure those um, and communicate those to voters. So especially in communities where there uh, maybe already was mistrust of the postal system, and now it's just um, grown because of the things that we've seen in the news. Having some alternative, I think, is uh, really important and we should, you know, be very thoughtful about uh, politicizing uh, that as a, as a way to return ballots. Right,
1: and I think I said Maurice next. Yeah,
4: so EAC has been working with partners uh, since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, working with a joint working group to get out specific documents, around uh, expecting increased uh, ballots by mail and the considerations that come along with that, Uh, hosting roundtable discussions where we get to the details of uh, talking about things like, well, what's the lead time on the manufacturing of equipment that can do high speed uh, sorting and scanning uh, of ballots? And what are the considerations that are necessary if if those aren't necessarily available uh, to a jurisdiction in time for the November election? Um, But also we provide uh, toolkits through uh, Partnering with electionmail.org, again, getting into those nitty-gritty administration-level details uh, to make sure that election officials know that there are options, best practices that are available to them. Uh, in terms of designing their ballots, uh, designing their return envelopes, uh, to make sure that uh, the Postal Service uh, can uh, collect and, and sort and route those particular uh, pieces of mail uh, uh, in a particular way. And, and so I think that those are things that election officials who uh, may not have as much experience with vote by mail are certainly uh, encouraged to look into and, and consider. Um, because, you know, if you have states like Oregon or Washington that are a, a accustomed to doing high volumes of mail, uh, you know, then they're going to be business as usual, basically. Um, But other jurisdictions, they may only uh, be used to having uh, mail coming in in terms of single digit numbers. And so even just a doubling of that volume um, puts a lot of pressure on the system. And then they still have to run uh, their in-person polling places with the expectation that Uh, They don't quite know how many people to expect, uh, you know, to show up in person or how many people are going to be mailing in their ballot instead. Uh, So they're in essence running, uh, you know, two elections at once.
1: Got it. Um, Matt, do you want to jump in?
2: No, I think they covered it perfectly. We can we can get other questions.
1: Great, Great, because I've got another question for you. Um, Why has election security always been a local or state issue and responsibility as opposed to a central one? Would the change, if it were a national effort, uh, would that help with financial and legal disparities between the states?
2: Yeah, I absolutely love this question. So thank you. Thank you for whoever asked it. Uh, So traditionally uh, and constitutionally, elections are run at the state and local level, right? So state and local officials are responsible uh, for running elections in general, which includes securing the system. So they're, they're the owners and operators of the systems that, that run our elections, which is, uh, I think, appropriate uh, and, and good, uh, in part because it does allow voters to engage directly with the process, with those who run uh, the process. Uh, and so I, I think that's an important part of this. Uh, what changed is 2016 happened, uh, and we know uh, that the, in this case, uh, Russian operatives targeted uh, the 2016 election, including uh, targeting election infrastructure, uh, voter registration data and databases. Uh, and this was the sea change for election administration. Uh, and what led or came out of that uh, is elections were declared part of our nation's critical infrastructure by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, so we have uh, 16 sectors, uh, really 18 sectors and subsectors of critical infrastructure that includes everything from the power, to the water, uh, to IT systems, uh, and financial systems. Uh, and what this declaration did was declared, okay, elections are, are in that same category. They're critical to the function uh, of our democracy, of our nation, uh, and we need to work to protect them. And so what that allows us uh, at CISA to do is prioritize state and local election officials for support and services, Uh, and help them uh, manage the risk. They still own and operate the systems, they still run elections, that is how it should be, Uh, but we're able to do things like penetration testing, cyber hygiene scanning, phishing assessments, incident response, uh, real-time or close to real-time sharing of information through what's called an information sharing and analysis center, uh, all to help support them. And so uh, really the burden of securing our elections falls on all levels of government and quite frankly uh, the, the American voter Uh, You you know, they have a resilience role in this, uh, but the federal government over the last three years has has really been able to provide a great deal of support services to state and local officials. We work with uh, almost uh, 6,000 jurisdictions that have received our information in some form or another uh, or services or support uh, to help them. And and we're really proud of that partnership with the state and local officials because they're working their tails off uh, to secure this.
1: We are in a different world than we were four years ago on this. Huh.
2: Jennifer, very different, yeah, very.
1: <laughs> Jennifer, I'm coming to you next. Uh, this, com- this question comes from Tim. How do you recommend responding to public record requests for digital ballot images and the 22-month retention? And before you answer, do tell us what you, what's meant by digital ballot images so we're all on the same page when we're talking about that.
3: Sure, so most of the new voting systems, when you scan a ballot, uh, it takes a picture. So when we say ballot image, it's just that, it's a picture of the ballot. There's also a lot of uh, metadata associated with that ballot that is used to interpret it and to tally results. Um, The answer is really simple. It's in most of the time determined by uh, statutory language. So state to state, uh, there will be uh, some sort of definition of what is um, public and what is not. Um, I've seen states extend the definition of a ballot to include language around ballot image or the electronic version of the ballot. Um, So that really is a state by state question and I don't, I would have to go to the NCSL website to see what I could find out uh, about how each state interprets that. I will say I've filled those record requests before and they're tough because it's a lot of data. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of images essentially. So you think about the amount of storage, on your phone for the you know a handful of pictures that you take um, in larger jurisdictions where you may have three four or five hundred thousand ballot images, um, it just becomes like kind of a logistics issue for downloading and storing and trans transferring that to the requester
1: i'll be interested in further conversation with you about that because as more places have those um, digital images, this question will come back more and more. Um, Maurice, the next one's for you. it comes from both Carol and Cheryl and um, it's about uh, disinformation is not always from foreign or, um, uh, actors. It can be domestic. Can you talk to us about that side of things too, and particularly how to combat it? Is it any different?
4: Well, the good thing is uh, the, it's not any different. So the, the protections that we're talking about when we're, we're talking about putting uh, two-factor authentication on social media accounts, or having educated voters, those work effectively uh, against domestic misinformation messages as well as um, international uh, information messages. And I think it's something that we haven't really talked about because so much of the focus has been on Russia or other countries, uh, but really I see longer longer term um, that the domestic misinformation messages are something that could have an equal or even greater impact on our electoral process you know, we have the the right to free speech and along with that comes a certain level of responsibility to make sure that uh, we're being critical of the messages that we receive to make sure that there's no undue influence uh, in our actions. And so I think that as long as voters can stay up to date uh, with the messages uh, that they're receiving and being critical of them, uh, those same techniques can be effective against domestic misinformation. It's actually something that I was a little bit more concerned about uh, pre-COVID Uh, in terms of the primary elections, because in in my view, that was a a real opportunity for misinformation to have a a negative impact. Um, We had so many candidates um, in the primaries, uh, and the elections were happening in such a short time period uh, that misinformation could have been used uh, to help derail um, those campaigns uh, if it had been used. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, uh, there was a disruption to the election called COVID, so uh, that, that risk passed, um, but I, I think it, come November, we're in a little bit better shape in terms of uh, having a focused general election, uh, but more importantly, having a process that we've already been through before. Uh, it wasn't that long ago for some of us, uh, Bush v. Gore in 2000, where there was a contested outcome, and we went through the entire process of adjudication and through the Supreme Court, and we had the time to do so. And so I think drawing on that experience uh, is something that could be important in November as we consider uh, misinformation messages that are coming uh, leading up to election day, uh, but then after election day, if the results are in fact close, then there needs to be additional adjudication.
1: Great. Uh, We are nearing the end of our time together. We did have a question about what happens if there's an October surprise. And by that, sometimes something happens in October, and it could be foreign war, it could be some new news about people's histories, who knows what it is. And sometimes it's had an impact on how people voted in the past. With everyone voting are so many people choosing to vote early. Uh, is there any way for them to change their, their vote? Um, and uh, Maurice, while I've got you up on the screen, do you know the answer to that? Uh, anything about an October surprise?
4: I hope there's not an October surprise, I, I really do. Uh, but I, I would like to, to end with this message saying that the, the federal government is here to help state and local officials uh, as best we can and to help voters. Uh, we're about 81 days out. Uh, from Election Day. But realistically, you can cut that number in half if you consider uh, that UOCAVA and overseas voters are going to be getting their ballots uh, relatively soon. Uh, and the federal government has always had an interest in protecting uh, federal uh, U.S. elections. Uh, we've seen the, the 19th Amendment so that women can vote. We've seen the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so there has always been some federal interest. Uh, and so we're looking forward to continuing that effort and collaborating with state and local officials as well as other federal partners to, to keep that going.
1: Uh, great. That was a wonderful closing for you. Uh, before I turn to you, and unless you have something extra you want to say, but before I turn to Matt and Jennifer, I do want to say that Shanda has given us a public service announcement that libraries are fully functioning right now during the pandemic and do not hesitate to reach out. That's a great local resource to, for getting information out to folks so um, matt uh, let's let 's uh, turn to you and ask you if you 've got some final thoughts for this audience on um, uh, what they can be doing thinking, and if it 's inspirational that 's super great
2: <laughs> well i can 't promise inspiration, but uh, uh, I appreciate the time I appreciate this panel A, a couple thoughts uh, the, the first is. Uh, In many ways, uh, the conversations that are happening now around elections are are good because it's raising the public consciousness uh, around elections, around the processes, the procedures, challenging all of us that are involved to uh, raise the bar on transparency and to really engage voters, right? Uh, And I I think that's a positive thing. People are more aware uh, of what's happening in and around uh, elections. For election officials, it it really comes down to uh, prioritizing your time, uh, which is your most valuable resource, uh, and your assets towards uh, how best to serve your voters, including how to secure the, the system. So uh, as you look at where can my resources best be used, uh, mitigating those risks around uh, general, uh, you know, your, your general computing systems, your laptops or your, or, or your uh, business systems, your outward facing websites, patching systems, having a patching plan and ensuring that you're doing that and then having an incident response plan. There are going to be cyber incidents during this election. That's how it works in any IT environment, not unique to elections. What's your plan to respond? Uh, if you get locked up with ransomware, how are you going to recover? Because you're going to be at, uh, need that in place and, and have practiced it uh, to recover. And then uh, for voters, it really does come down to having a plan as well, right? Understanding what are my options? What's on my ballot? How can I engage the process? Remaining patient, whether it's on receiving your ballot, getting it back, election night results, and then uh, really participating 250,000, 500,000 uh, poll workers are needed nationwide, somewhere in that range. And there's good work being done by the EAC nonprofit sectors. If you're healthy, if you feel safe to be an election worker, or you feel like you could serve, it is an incredible way to serve your community, particularly right now, particularly in the midst of, midst of COVID. The reality is for most states in-person voting is going to be the most common form or, or the way that most voters choose to interact with the process. We need poll workers. We need polling places. Uh, So please be uh, engaged with the process and thank you.
1: Love it, that was great. Jennifer, um, 30 seconds of inspiration for us and then I'm gonna turn it back.
3: Yep, I will be quick and I'll actually direct my message to any state or local official that's on this call because you really are the superheroes of the moment. And um, I can't say enough how amazed I've been at the work that's being done, hours, um, in just unprecedented circumstances, with still limitations on resources, space, time, people, et cetera. And I would just say, please don't feel like you have to do it alone. There are so many groups and organizations and partners uh, ready and willing to help, even if it's just a small piece of a challenge uh, that you're dealing with. And if you're not an election official and you're listening, uh, now is the time to step up and uh, do what you can to, to help. Uh, so. That's, so, so appreciate being here today.
1: Well, I am indeed inspired hearing about the uh, amazing work that you all are doing. And I thank you all for being with us as panelists. And I thank everyone who's on the line for sticking with us. Those were great questions. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them. It was just so much to pack in. So Larry, that's a message for you. Keep doing it.
3: Thank you everyone for joining us today. You'll see here on your screen, we've got the email contact information for the folks who were our speakers. Thanks again to Wendy and all of our panelists for a great session today and have a good rest of the day.